and let's head over to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. While you're headed that direction, let's just get our minds moving on this beautiful, cool fall morning. Name some activity you haven't done since high school gym class. <laughs> Pull-ups, exercise. What's that? I missed somebody said something here. Climb a rope. Hey, I couldn't climb the rope even in gym class, so I've never tried since. <laughs> Here's what they said. Any type of exercise, I'm without one. Okay, changing in a locker room, lifting weights, sit-ups, push-ups, dodgeball, and run a mile. I don't know why they didn't put the rope up there, but uh, name a reason kids wake up during the night. Bad dream. Bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what they said. Ready to play. Any of your kids ever wake up ready to play? In the middle of the night. Okay. Hungry, heard a noise, scared of the dark, bad dream, need the bathroom, thirsty. 100 kids surveyed. Name something you'd like to take to bed with you. Teddy bear. Teddy bear. <laughs> uh, here's what they said. A book, toys, pet. My kids never took books to bed. Okay. Toys, pets, siblings, mom or dad, special blanket, and stuffed animals, number one. Name something you love about the fall season. Hunting season. Hunting season. <laughs> oh, boy. Here's what they said. Playing in the leaves, fall foods, corn mazes, holiday festivals, cooler temps, number one is color of the leaves. Okay. This is so easy. I've given you all the answers. Match the chapter with the event. It is so easy. Okay. Let's, let's do chapters four and five. Okay. Yeah, it's the very beginning of John's vision of heaven. Okay, remember the throne, all the, he sees the Lamb of God coming, taking the scroll. Okay, and then right after the vision, uh, Jesus Christ has taken the scroll that has the seven seals on it. So that gives you a hint. What happens, number six? The seal judgments, number, I guess, chapter six. Chapter 7 is the introduction of the 144,000. But then chapters 8 and 9, they deal with the next set of... Yeah, because the seventh seal introduces the first trumpet judgment. Okay? So they go together. Then chapters 9 and 10 are almost like a... Um, uh, a break from the story, and they give you information about some of the main characters that are working for God. Hint, hint. It's a parenthetical part. Okay, it's the two prophets. Very good, Joyce. You got that hint. Okay, then chapters 12 and 13, after he's given us information about his workers, uh, then chapter 13 gives you the opposite, the anti-God. Okay, uh, no, no, not yet. It's a group. It talks about, first of all, one of them getting kicked out of heaven, one of them working on earth, one of them in this group is getting the uh, statue built and the 666. The unholy trinity, absolutely. Chapter 14, then, is talking about, right after he says about that unholy trinity, he again tells us he has people working. He has the message going out being preached by lots of Jewish converts as well as some angelic beings. Oh, very good. Very good. No hints given here. Okay. Chapters 15 and 16 is getting us back into the judgments. The vile judgments. And then right after that, he talks about uh, specifically how, in chapter 7 and 18, about two different Babylons, the rise and fall of Antichrist. And then chapter 19, which we haven't even talked about. Oh, you're good. You guys got the last one. 
Okay, excellent, excellent. So you even know the book without even studying it. I am thoroughly impressed. So let's do it. Let's uh, give it a little bit of background information. And, and, and it's good for us to get the flow of the book. It's always good to just understand how it all kind of weaves together. So uh, getting that type of a basic outline down is helpful. So we've talked about in that tribulation, it's going to be a time period where um, Antichrist is going to come to dominant power. He's going to be world power, and this is especially in the second half of the tribulation. He is basically totally in control. And uh, during that time, we know that his domain, it says, is going to be the housing or the home for many of the demons. God is, um, God is opposed to him, but he's going to promote himself by lies, deceptions, miracles, all kinds of, of things that are supporting him. He'll kill off those who don't follow him, and he's going to seek to destroy the Jews as well as uh, any of the converts. And he goes after the two prophets. He does kill them. They rise up after three days or three and a half days. The vast majority of people in the world are going to follow him. And so then we get to that section that we've been talking about. Chapters 15 through 19, God takes him down with the bold judgments, which are a cluster of judgments at the very end of the tribulation period, as well as he talks about the two different Babylons that have worked with him, how he's going to take them down. In fact, um, we've talked about those bold judgments, the destruction of his ally, Babylon, which I understand is the false church, that uh, false Christian church that is going to help set the scene for Antichrist, promote him in the first three and a half years. And uh, then we read in chapter 18, we read about the destruction of his capital city, which we've talked about the last two weeks, that Babylon. And in chapter 18, there's lots of voices being heard. We talked about the voice of condemnation, about Babylon, Babylon, you're falling, you're falling. We've talked about the voice of separation, how the God, from the throne of God, it says, come out from this city of Babylon that is so wicked. And uh, the angel calls out God's people, my people, and he explains why in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 18, where he talks about how evil and wicked and, and uh, how corrupt they are, and, and uh, that they've they will get their double portion. Then we have the lamenting of all the different uh, kings, the merchants, the sailors. They're all lamenting the fact that this city is being destroyed. And their lament was not over the loss of life. What was the, their lamenting for? Loss of their, their ongoing income, influence, etc., etc. Then we said that there's an odd voice that, that's spoken in verse 20, which is going to be picked up. So we need to ask, uh, see verse 20 of chapter 18 because it becomes chapter, 20, uh, chapter 19. So in the midst of all this destruction, then all of a sudden somebody is saying in verse 20 of chapter 18, Rejoice over her, heaven and holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. And so we're going to come back to that and talk a little bit more because that, be, that is all of a sudden, after they're told to rejoice, chapter 19 is a record of their rejoicing. Then at the very end, the angel takes the millstone, throws it into the ocean, and the millstone disappears, and it's like that's what's going to happen to Babylon. The destruction is going to be so thorough that uh, there will be no more, no more, no more, no more, and he lists all the different no mores. And so the idea is just very, very, very clear that because of their greed, because of their deception, because of their persecution, God is going to wipe out Antichrist's capital in his um, venture to take out Antichrist, which will eventually culminate in the Battle of Armageddon. So we're in chapter 19, okay? Just ended chapter 18, which is ending with mourning and sorrow. In chapter 19, all of a sudden it shifts gears. From chapter, chapter 18 is a worldly, earthly vision or view. We're seeing things in chapter 18 at this level. We're, the, we're seeing through the eyes of the people and how they're mourning over the city. We're seeing through the eyes of the kings and, and for the inhabitants of the city how bad it is. Now chapter 19 shifts gear and chapter 19 is now we're going to see what heaven is doing. We've heard in chapter 18, verse 20, rejoice all you who are in heaven. Well, there's no explanation. There's no description of their rejoicing for the next few verses, but chapter 19 picks it up. Chapter 19 now, after it's talk about all of the mourning, picks up with what we're going to call the merriment. And what happens in chapter 19, if you look at just real quickly, the first four verses, there's a word of rejoicing that shows up several times. 
Alleluia. Okay? Alleluia shows up. This is the first time it's showing up in the New Testament. Okay? It comes from Old Testament concept of Hallel and God. And so all of a sudden we have Alleluia, Alleluia, or, or Hallelujah. It shows up several times right away. And again, understand this is rejoicing in heaven at that simultaneous moment of what's happening on earth, which is this, it, by the calendar, this is just before the return of Jesus Christ. The bold judgments are taking place. The city of Babylon is destroyed. Armageddon is going to be enacted, as we'll see in, the, in chapter 19. All at the same time, that's what's going on. Christ is ready to come. The saints are told to rejoice. And so that's what's going to happen here in chapter 19. So the praising starts happening and it says right away after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying hallelujah salvation glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God for true and righteous are his judgments for he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand and again they said hallelujah and her smoke rose up forever and ever and the twenty uh, the twenty four elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne and they were saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and you that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a mighty thunderings, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. So just looking at that quickly, which you, you got it. John is saying, I hear this great voice of much people. Literally, it should, it should read of a great multitude. We don't have the word ethnos in there. We don't have the word of the idea of people. But we just have this great number in heaven that they're, they're rejoicing. The question that some authors have for the sake of just discussion, I guess, is who is this? Who's making all this noise? Who's making all this celebration? And it's different possibilities. It's angels. Who else? The saints who are in heaven. Which ones? Which saints? Okay, the martyred saints from the tribulation. Okay, Old Testament saints who may be there in spirit. Us, okay, us, okay, we're part of that. So it, it's this whole group that could be, okay. And, I, and I'm not sure it's worth making all the distinction, but um, he, some will go on there and say, okay, there's this great celebration, and then others are joining in, it seems, as it is this crescendo is building, or other groups are addressed anyway in the next couple of verses that we read. Uh, they're going to break out in all of this rejoicing. And what he does is he tells us why they're so excited. Well, right away you're going to say, we would be excited because we're, we're in heaven. Would that be sufficient to be excited? I mean, would you mind being in heaven right now? Okay. What, what else is going to make it exciting for those people or us at that time? What's that? The marriage of the Lamb, which he's going to talk about. What else? What would you say? In context, up to this point, what if they just ended up on earth? The defeat, Satan's being defeated. Okay, so there's the enthusiasm because we're in heaven and let's say we're looking down. Let's, uh, I'm not saying this is the way it works. But let's just say we were in the bleachers looking down. What are we seeing our team do? Now our team's winning. Okay, it looked like we were behind for the entire game. But all of a sudden, as we're in the last few seconds of the game, we've come back. Okay, and, we're, and it's, it, they're being, the enemy's being defeated. And so there's going to be this rejoicing. Now, I'm just going to break it down in, in different thoughts. One is they sell, it's specifically stated that we're going to be celebrating the greatness of God. He says it that way in, uh, in the verse. He says, hallelujah, salvation, glory, and honor, and power unto the Lord God. Literally, it reads this, the salvation, the glory, the honor, the power. And so he's trying to really emphasize the fact that all these things belong to God. Um, and so he's saying God is alone is deserving this praise. He possesses the power. And then when he talks about salvation, there is a, there's a possibility here. What he's talking about is not just the idea of our salvation that we experience when we get saved. Uh, let me see if I can explain it this way. Okay, um, salvation that we experience 
Let me jump to my, this slide. When we get saved, we would say that that is our moment of conversion. Okay? What are we saved from? Okay, we're saved from what, what fa- part of sin? We're, we're saved from the penalty of sin. Yes? Okay, we're saved from, from the penalty of sin. Then, when, we're, when we are going through this process of sanctification, what are we, and this is, this is talked about as salvation. Work out your own salvation, okay? What are we dealing with then? We're, we're being released from, as time goes by, from what? The power of sin in our life, okay? When we get raptured and we're taken to heaven, what are we then, that's going to be called the glorification, which is also talked about in the sense of, you know, let's give worship to God for salvation, and it's dealing with us getting into heaven. That phase, we're saved from the what? From the presence of sin. Okay, and so in the context of this verse, where are the saints? Just getting saved in the process of growth, or are they experiencing the glorification? And so they're looking and they're saying, not only are we being, have we been saved from the presence of sin, but it's not just us. What's, what's the prospect for the earth? The same thing for the earth. Because when Jesus brings his kingdom, what does he do with all unrighteousness? He takes it away. Okay, for the most part it'll be gone. Yeah, and so he's going to have this perfect righteous kingdom. And so the rejoicing is in heaven is God is about to bring salvation to all of creation. Does that make sense? There, the, when we're in heaven, we're recognizing the kingdom is about to come, as was prophesied. And that means for the world, woohoo! Okay? And so he's talking about this salvation, honor, glory. And you look at it, the reason that this kingdom is possible is because of God's power, God's glory, not our own. And he's going to bring it about. And then they make this comment. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication. And so another reason that there's enthusiasm is because in heaven we're recognizing God is taking out all evil. He's not only completing or consummating his uh, salvation plan, but he's taking out all evil. True and righteous are his judgments. Now, this phrase shows up a lot in the Bible that indicates that God, when he judges, he is always judging. Yeah, whatever word you want to put in there, okay? When, when God meets out judgment, and we, we find it throughout. In, in fact, we're approaching the holiday seasons, and even the verse that talks about from the Old Testament of Jesus coming and ruling and reigning, unto us the Son is born, he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government, there will peace, there will be no end. That is, peace will spread throughout the entire world. Okay, this is the idea. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. Do you remember the next phrase that talks about how he's going to judge and rule and reign? It goes on, it says, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. Then he did clearly when Jesus rules and reigns, the, the person in authority will do everything righteously. Now, we look at our, our world right now do we need righteous leadership? Okay, so this is finally, finally being done. And remember at the moment in history, we're in heaven, we haven't experienced it, but we may be aware of what has gone on on earth. What is the description? Give me a one-word description of the, the one who's been ruling the earth. Righteous, wicked, evil, corrupt, Everything evil. And all of a sudden Jesus is coming. No wonder there's a rejoicing. Jeremiah talks about, behold, the days are coming with that. David, his branch will, will uh, be the one of righteousness. He will reign and execute justice with righteousness. We read in, in First Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, where he talks about Jesus Christ coming and he's going to take out vengeance. Watch the first phrase. Since it is a just thing, a righteous thing with God to repay the, the tribulation. And so what God is going to do at this time is perfectly, perfectly justifiable. It is right that God is going to come. He's going to vanquish these enemies. I struggled with this text. 
Maybe you've got a better answer than I do. But I struggle with the text going, wait a minute. True and righteous, you have judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication. Um, where did we meet the great whore before? Was there any verbiage that, uh, that talked about a great whore? Yes, no? Okay, chapter 17, she was called the great harlot. Okay, and we said that was the, that was the church that was corrupt. And so did we, but then, but then chapter 18, right before this, is the city of Babylon, the capital city. Do we misinterpret that idea that the, there is a false religion Corrupt, corrupt Christian religion that helped promote Antichrist and that was distinct from the capital city of chapter 18. All the proofs that we look seem to be very clear. But now he talks about it in a singular sense. Well, maybe then those two, I distinguish two different Babylons, Babylon, a, a religious system, Babylon, the commercial system, both corrupt. Maybe they were supposed to be just one. Okay. Maybe that's, that's what this phrase is saying. Even though clearly back there, the one is in the middle of the tribulation, the one was destroyed by the kings, and the second one is at the end of the tribulation and lamented by the kings. And there seemed to be very clearly they were two distinct entities, but both had similar properties. So why does he say the great whore? And I think, I, and I think the answer in my mind is just what I said. They are the same thing but different. Okay, do the two of them have a lot in common? What were they? What was the commonality? They're, they're both called harlots. What did they do with both of them did? What did they do with the kings of the earth? Very clearly stated in both, both those chapters. They fornicated with the kings of the earth. So they were both unloyal, they were both immoral in their commitments. What did, they both, what did both of them do to the saints of God? They killed them. They killed them. Very clearly, both of them. So both of the harlot, the mystery Babylon, the great Babylon, which I think are distinct entities, but they're one and the same in spirit and in purpose and in action. And so that's why there's a singular statement that says the great whore. He's talking about that entire antichrist system has been destroyed because of they're, both, they're both guilty of the same things. They're, they have a distinction in time, but they're the same things when it comes to their, their purpose and their results. And so what happens is he says the great whore, and I think he's talking about that whole system, that whole concept that he says which did corrupt the earth, and he refers to it again, the fornication and the blood of the servants, which both those entities did, both in chapter 17 and 18. And he says that again they said, hallelujah, her smoke, uh, her smoke is rising up forever and ever. Which, by the way, that says to you what? Okay. They're damned. They're damned, and so there's destruction that, that they're excited about. So remember these two great e this, this great evil of you know, Mystery Babylon as well as the city of Babylon. Remember that whole thing. They housed demons. They were both motivated by demons. In fact, that great horror of religion, Timothy has written, he says, in the latter days, there will, they will be teaching and promoting doctrines of demons. And uh, which we'll say about, you know, don't eat meats, forbidding to marry, etc. So both of these entities have been involved with hand-in-hand -hand with demons. They both killed God's people. They both got involved with attacking the Jewish people. They killed the prophets. They blasphemed God. They refused to repent. They worship Antichrist and the devil. They will physically, what's the remaining of them, of the people of that time in Antichrist, they will attack Jesus when he descends from heaven. How stupid. But how corrupt that they will physically attack Jesus descending from heaven. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's mind boggling. And so, what's happening is the saints are understanding how this is going to. We're coming down to earth. We're ready to mount the horses. We're ready to return, which happens in chapter 19. And there's an excitement in heaven that basically says, let's get on the horses. We're going down and we're going to win. They're going to be defeated. 
this evil that has risen to the, to the ultimate peak of all history. And so the hallelujah, the heavenly beings are told to rejoice. And we're rejoicing because things on earth have been destroyed. And again, we, we talked about this last week, but it's worth pausing because I, it was interesting. I just did it for fun, going and looking up different interpretations of this text. And right away, there's people who, say, who scoff at the text because they say, why would a loving God tell his saints to rejoice in the destruction of someone else? So right away, this is, this is used as a blemish on God's character and the blemish on your character because you aren't loving. Does it remind you of what's going on in our society today? That when you take a stand and say certain things are wrong, you are unloving because you, you say it's wrong. And from their point of view, the only way you can be loving is accept what I'm doing. And don't you have an opinion? You accept me and my opinion. And we're saying, hey, listen, we love you. We just don't agree with what you're doing. But we're the haters, okay? And so that same group is taking this passage and saying, God's a hater. God is saying, rejoice over the destruction. And you and I say, well, wait a minute. There is good reason. It's not because God's cruelty. It's because what is the enthusiasm in heaven? Even though people are dying, why is there enthusiasm in heaven? Okay, let's list a whole bunch of things here. Somebody said something here. Christ is coming back. What else? What's that? They're vindicated. What's that? It's all going to be made right. Okay, evil's going to be crushed. Okay, it's coming to an end. We can list all these things. Okay, some of what you what you've stated. Okay, that this is this is worth getting excited. I know that there's casualties in it, but this is worth getting excited about. God's going to bring His kingdom. Everything is happening as God predicted. So it's going to be an excitement in heaven, and exactly as God said. Now I'm going to bring you back to the psalm that we've talked about in worship service on a couple different occasions which I never realized how important this psalm is until we studied it back in summer, and then again we've mentioned it when we were in Acts 2. The Lord said to Jesus, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations of your inheritance. Um, do you remember the, the beginning of this passage? The nations are mocking, and they're, they're, they're uh, angry at God, and God says, I will hold them in derision. The idea is, oh foolish people, and so all the Gentiles, they'll gather against. And then he says, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You're going to dash them like the potter's vessel. God's going to take control. So it's an exciting time that all of a sudden there's worship. And now we read some other characters in this worship. The four and twenty elders. Who's the four and twenty elders? Whenever you read it in Revelation, who is it? It's the church saints, representation of us who are in heaven. Okay, The, the 24 elders and who's the four beasts? He uses this phrase, the 24 elders and the beast, several times through the book. So I want to make sure you understand this. The 24 represent the church saints. Who are the four beasts? Now go all the way back to chapter 4 that started this. Go back to chapter 4. Make sure we've got this down pat because it keeps on showing up. But you've heard beast, 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 beast. Sometimes in the negative, this one's in a positive. Where he talks about in verse 6 of chapter 4, when he sees the first vision of heaven, when it's first starting, um, you see in verse, let's go back to verse 4. Round about the throne were the 24 seats, and upon the seats I saw four and 20 elders sitting clothed with raiment. Out of the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, voices, seven lamps of burning fire. And before the throne there was a sea of glass. And in the midst of the throne around about four beasts. What other word might you have? Creatures, living beings literally is what it is. And when we think beasts, what do we think? An animal, something vile, more negative. And it's used in the negative sense later in the book. But in here it's very, very positive where he describes the beast in, verse, uh, in this passage. 
Around about the throne, the four beasts full of eyes, before and behind. The first beast was like a lion, the second the calf, the third had a face like a man, the fourth like a flying eagle. These four beasts, which had them six wings, were full of eyes, and they rested not day and night. And what do they say? Okay, so you know that they're, they're good. They're at the throne, they're wonderful, and the beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne. And the 24 elders fell down before him that sat on the throne, and they worship, and they cast their what before him? The crowns. It's us. And they all sing together, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor. Now we see them again. Right before the return of Jesus Christ, we see them in chapter 19, verse 4, together worshiping once again. Once again, the four and 24 elders and the beasts fall down and they worship God that sat on the throne and they said, amen. What's amen mean? I'm done. Okay. Okay. So be it. So be it. They are agreeing with what's happening. They in heaven are saying, yep, this is good. Hallelujah. And then the voice comes out and the throne says, praise our God, all you his servants and you that fear him. And so we get these groups that are there worshiping. They're saying they are agreeing that the judgment is right. But now we get to chapter 5 and 6 and it's the introduction that Jesus is going to rule and reign. There's the statement of his rule and reign coming at this moment. And it says, His God, ye that fear. And he says at the end of verse 6, For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth forever. And this voice from the throne is saying, you know, let's give praise to our God. I think it's one of the four beasts because it's not God himself give praise to our God. It's another per being saying give praise to our God rather than God using himself in the third person. Um, calls to the saints and him that fear him, which could be the tribulation saints in particular here. Could be us, could be the Old Testament, could be all of us. And he says at all levels we're to be giving praise and worship. And so John is excited about this voice of, that's gathered now that he compares them and he says there's the voice of many waters. It's like the voice of mighty... What is he, why does he use that phrase? These voices that are singing hallelujah are like many waters or like many thunderings. What's his point? Loud? Okay. Can a, can a thundering waterfall be loud? Can it, can it take out all the other sounds? Oh, absolutely. Okay, how many been to Niagara? Okay, did you go on the bridge underneath the falls? How many did that? Okay, was it loud? Could you hear other stuff? Okay, when we were there, it was like, isn't this cool? And she's like, <laughs> right, it's loud. It, it, just, it just takes over. So he's saying that here, and this is just absolutely amazing, and everybody's unified in praise, praising God. Praising God and this is worship. Now, he uses the term for God, which shows up nine times in the book of Revelation. You, my translation is omnipotent. It's a, other, other times it's a, just the idea of almighty God. And he says, when he says it, the Lord God already reigns. The, word, the verbiage that he uses is the idea that it has happened and it continues to happen. Has God ruled and reigned physically on earth yet? has he physically, has Jesus Christ physically ruled on earth up to this point? No. But in concept, has God been ruling? Has God been in control? Yeah, yeah. And so he says now he's going to rule and reign. And so if you were to pause for just a moment and you were to say the kingdom of God coming would really be cool because, what would you say the, is, is the neat things that the kingdom prospect, that we'll experience in the kingdom. What are some of the wonderful things that would make it exciting? Peace, how, how, how much, what are you talking about peace? World peace? Okay, All, how, many, how many nations will, get, will have peace between them? All of them, what else? What's that? Okay, peace within. Okay, what else? No more illnesses. What else? What's that? No more sadness. What else? No more, no more what? No more dentists is absolutely right. Somebody, you said death? No more death? Okay. You thought she said dentist? Okay. Okay. 
Well, that's true. <laughs> no more doctors, no more dentists, no more... Yeah. <laughs> okay. What about taxes? What about government? What about us in the animal kingdom? Do, do you remember what's been happening the last seven years in the tribulation? What's it been? What's the animals done? They've gone crazy that they're killing people. Okay? That's why you get rid of your cat now. Okay? Just... <laughs> The, the, animals, the animals go crazy. Okay. And so that it's all of a sudden peace in that. What about weather? Yeah, okay, we're back to an environment where there is no threat from the weather. And so we look and we go, man, all these good things that are going to happen, that uh, you know, it's just going to be none of this that we're experiencing at this point. And whatever we do will prosper in that sense the security removal of sinful influences now this is me this isn't you but i think one of the greatest parts of heaven is no more temptation to me that's just like i don't have to struggle with it anymore it just that's because i struggle you may not but i just that to me is going to be a relief righteous law and leadership and everybody's going to worship christ there's not going to be this debate over who is jesus Okay, everybody's going to be worshiping, and we'll talk about there's going to be people that will eventually, at the end, they will disagree with that, but we'll get there. So the Apostle John has just said all these things. He's referring to Jesus coming back to reign. He's referring to this kingdom, but then all of a sudden he doesn't continue the thought and give us more detail about the Lord's return. If you notice what happens here, he is led to talk about another event rather than give us the details about the coming of Christ. What other event does he mention in the next verses that is a wonderful event, but it's, it's not elaborating upon the return of Christ? The marriage supper of the Lamb is what he mentions next. And so it's kind of interesting, okay? He's going to give us details about Christ's return, which if you look down through the chapter, all of a sudden verse 11 resumes that idea of he's going to rule and reign, and he's coming by saying, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, and he that sat him was faithful and true. But in verses 7 and 10, he introduces us to something that's been prophesied in the, in the Bible or re- alluded to, but now he gives us the detail. Doesn't give us a lot, but he gives us detail about another event. And that other event that he's talking about is one that is a joy-filled. I mean, weddings are supposed to be joy-filled. Yay? Okay, they're supposed to be a happy occasion. And so when he's talking about all of those people in heaven rejoicing, he is saying that, hey, wait a minute, there's this, this rejoicing because of the marriage of the Lamb. And he makes a comment here in verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is now come. And his wife hath made herself ready and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. The fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he has, the angel says to me, write, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he says to me, these are a true saying. I was so impressed. I fell at his feet to worship, and he said, See that you don't do this. I'm a fellow servant and of thy brethren, and have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so what's happening here is as he's talking about joy in heaven, he gives us the other reason that the saints in heaven are really excited because the wedding's taking place. The marriage is taking place. And the celebration is right about to happen. And so for us to understand this, okay, uh, this joysome thing, we need to understand some customs here. We need to understand and ask some questions. Who's getting married? It's the lamb, and we all know who that is, yay? Who's the lamb? Okay, it's Christ. We understand that. But who is he marrying and... When exactly or what exactly is happening at this text, in this marriage situation? And so to better understand that, let's take one question at a time. Who's the bride? How do you know that? You've got to give me a Bible. Gotta, where, how do you know the church is the bride of Christ? And don't say the Bible says so. Where? <laughs> 
This is the first verse wives want their husbands to memorize. Okay. Husbands, even as, and gave himself for it. Okay, Ephesians 5. Okay, you want to flip back there? Ephesians is, he's given us very, a lot of information, and there's a word back in Ephesians 5 you need to see. So go back there and see it. Okay? In Ephesians 5, he's already, as he's given the inspiration, under the inspiration of the Word of God, he's talking about husbands and wives. And you've already hit the nail on the head. The, the bride is the church, is the church-age saints. And he makes that clear in chapter 5 of, of Ephesians, verse 23. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. He's making the analogy all the way through. He says, therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, let the wives be to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Watch your next phrases. That he, might, he gave himself for it so he could do what? That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word so that he might, what's it say in Ephesians 5? present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that it should be holy and without blemish. Okay, future tense. He's going to present it to himself one day. And then he talks about it in verse 32. He says, this is a great mystery. What is the great mystery? Men and ladies getting married. Well, there's a lot of mystery to that. Okay, that we all of a sudden say, really? This is the person I really married? You know, it, it was different when we dated. Okay. Um, that's not what he's talking about, that type of idea. He is saying that there is a spiritual mystery here, something that hasn't been revealed prior to what he's revealing at the time in Ephesians. I speak concerning who? Christ and the church. So he's made it very clear that, that in Ephesians 5, the bride, he's revealing it, the bride of Jesus Christ is going to be the church. And he's going, to, he's going to work in such a way to present it to himself. So we have as well other passages that Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he's alluding to the same idea. I am jealous with you with a godly jealousy for I have espoused you. I've engaged you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste version to Jesus. And you look at it and go, what does he mean he espoused? Okay, how does that work? We're going to see in just a moment. Okay, it's the way Jewish weddings worked. And Paul has a play in this. We've already read this passage from Ephesians and talk about that, that great mystery. To understand it in its totality and even how the chronological outworking of this text in Revelation is working, you have to remember weddings were different back in Bible days than they were today. They, they, were, they are today too, a big event for a family. We all know that. Okay, a big event in your life. We know as well that they required lots of preparation. They did back then, they do today. Okay, there was a lot involved with getting prepared. And here's some of the differences. The wedding feast back in Bible days could last for days. When we say for days, we're talking about like several evenings in a row. They would come back and keep on coming back. And you would provide. And that would depend upon if you like those people, if they were related to you, if you could afford it. There was all different factors. So like weddings today... Weddings back then had a basic formula or pattern or process, but they varied because of family likes, dislikes. They varied because of expenses. They varied because of you know, communities. But basically, Jewish weddings had this. They had a procedure that they would go through. There was what you would call the betrothal stage. It was the planning. It was the proposal. The planning could begin all the way back to when? Okay, I'm talking weddings. I'm not talking spiritual. I'm talking Jewish weddings, Bible weddings. When could you, Somebody said childhood. How could they go back to childhood? You met your wife when you were in third grade? arranged marriages. Okay, they could be arranged by families, by parents. That's a possibility. Now, Jews did have some arranged marriages, even in the New Testament, but Jewish code also read the father could not force and should not force his daughter to marry somebody, even in an arrangement, that she did not want to marry. And that was different than some of the other cultures. But they could have arranged marriages. They didn't all work that way, but it could happen. But they did have this. They had a proposal, 
okay? The proposal would be when you, gentlemen, would have your best man go and proposition the family, asking the father or the brother, whoever was in charge. You didn't go and ask. Your best man made the proposal on your behalf. And the best man would come and uh, he would approach the bridal party and he would help make the arrangements for the engagement. That's why Paul says, I have espoused you to Christ. He was representing Christ to the Corinthians by preaching him. When Jesus first came, who was his best man? He, the man even said, I am not the groom, I'm the best man. John the Baptist said that I am the best man, I am presenting Christ to, to the Jews and making that, that um, offer to the Jews, which they rejected. But they, then they would have that there would be at this moment, he would, uh, the best man would arbitrate and try to figure out what is needed to get an agreement from the family. And they would say, okay, because we're losing this mouth who is a worker, I'm being really mundane, but that, that's some of the concept that started. We're losing a worker in the family. You've got to make some type of payment before this worker you're taking away. And so there was what we would call the payment plan. Um, that payment was going to be of some type of agreed amount. By the way, when Jesus did this for the church, he had John the Baptist make the proposal, then he had the apostles make the proposal. When did he, when, what was Jesus Christ's payment for the church? The cross, when he died, and he made payment for us that we were bought with a price. And so once there was the payment that was made, now the contract, verbal, written, whatever it was, and they went both ways, the contract was in place. And the engagement in Bible days was so binding, they were called... Okay, what was, the, what was the terms that they would call the, the persons? Husband and wife. Even in this text, that even though it, the, the actual you know, celebration hasn't happened, we're referred to as the wife. It is a done deal. And the only way you break the deal is by divorce. Okay, do you remember characters in the Bible that were engaged and they were not yet married but he heard that she was pregnant and he didn't understand the pregnancy and he says, I will put her away. The word is, I will divorce her. The same word. Who was it? Joseph to Bible culture. You couldn't break an engagement without a divorce. There had to be that. It was that binding. And so that payment, the, uh, the next phase would be what they called the pe preparation. Typically a year typically. And during that time, the bride would do her preparation. She would get whatever she needs to maintain a household. What was the groom's typical thing to do during this year? Build a house, usually at his father's property. By the way, do you remember any verse that this associates with? I will go and prepare a place for you and then, I, and, and then I will come and receive it. Jesus is right now in the preparation phase. He is building for us. Okay, what a beautiful analogy, all of this. Just, just wonderful. And so the groom would prepare the house, and the bride would, uh, you know, would basically get herself ready. And again, you're building, guys, you're on family plots, family land. Does that ever happen in our region? Do, do any family groups ever add on to their homes? Okay, we see that a lot in Lancaster County, right? Okay, they just add on, add on. And so the bride would prepare herself, and then there would be what I'm going to call the parade. The parade would be the time when the groom would come and get the bride. Typically in Bible days, it was a Tuesday. Do you know why Tuesday they picked for wedding, for the actual wedding? It's the only day in the seven days of creation where it says, and all that God saw that he created was good. It happens twice on the day, on Tuesday. So the Jews said, we'll do weddings to be blessed of God a little bit better. Tuesday is the better day. And obviously, they wouldn't do it on the Sabbath day. And so Tuesday was the wedding day. And, um, and so then, the, the, and I say this, they were scheduled. Think this through, because people think today, 
Well, all of a sudden the groom showed up totally unannounced, would grab the bride and take the bride, and nobody knew at all any idea of when he would do it. Time out on that. Okay? They had an idea because they were, do, they were planning a... the feast. Relatives had to be invited. People would come from other areas. They had an idea that it was going to happen this day, but they didn't know the time of the day. And that was that idea that could he come in morning? Could he come in the evening? Could he come? And so the virgins were supposed to keep their lamps lit ready for any moment when he would come. And so the moment of coming was still speculation because, I mean, today in our modern day, we set the wedding for 1 o'clock and the bride and groom are always ready <laughs> at 1 o'clock. <laughs> okay. In Bible days, they weren't as specific with time. And so it's, it's almost like Kim just relayed to us, we have class starting at 6 o'clock and they show up at 6.30, okay? So the groom would come for his bride and he and his friends would now have a parade through the town, whatever, pulling tin cans behind them, whatever they would do. And they, I'm just joking about tin cans. I don't believe they were there at that time. Um, but they get back and they go back to whose house? The... Whose father? They go back to not the bride's fa- father. Who's, got, who's paying for this thing? The groom's family. Don't you wish that was a... Okay. The groom's family's hosting this. They would parade back to the groom's family and just like Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you and I will come again and receive you unto myself. And it's going to take us back to the father's house. And so go back, and then, then what they would do is they would have what's called the presentation. Okay? This is when they would vow. This is when they would say things. It may not be in front of a whole lot of people yet. It may be, and, and there, there wasn't clergy typically involved. Typically, you know who did the vowing? I mean, the couple, do you know who did the, the blessing and asking for the vows? It's the parents, yeah. The parents were involved in it, usually the groom's father. And they were conducting, they were officiating the, the procedure. And then they would have that, and then after that, this is, this is the public or semi-public aspect, and blessed by the parents, sharing their vows, and then the party begins. There could be a little bit of gap. It could be together, Okay. Uh, but they would have the party, and the party was going to be, now we're going to do the meal. Uh, it, it's similar to what we do. Sometimes we do ceremonies where they're very private, but then they say we're going to have a feast and invite people in to celebrate. That, that could be the same type of thing. But now the party is when the meal, the celebration takes place. It could take several nights that they would have guests in, dependent upon your wallet, things like that. And then privacy, you understand what that, when that party is for the couple. Um, and so then they would have this wedding would be completed. The analogy is really clear. Jesus proposed to marry the church. He's made the payment. He's gone to the Father's house to prepare a place for us. He will come again, okay, and receive us. But right now, our, his commitment to us is so binding, it can't be broken, okay? And so what's going to happen is he's going to come, take us home at the rapture. Sometime after that is going to be the presentation, the vowing, and then after that is going to be the party. Chapter 19 is right in that section right there. The presentation, the party, it has arrived. The marriage supper is ready. But before you have the supper, you have to have all the guests. Yes, no? Okay, and that's where he says this true saying, blessed are those who are called to the supper. Now what happens in the remainder of the chapter is the gathering of the people to the supper. That's going to take place. Okay, and uh, there's going to be a whole bunch of people there. We'll talk about who they are next week as we got to stop, okay? And give you a little bit more of the chronology. Thanks.